Even 2,000 years later, the cross still brings reactions. We have turned something that initially was designed to be a, an instrument of horror and of destruction into something that we love. So I can remember singing at my grandfather's funeral, my, my sister and I sang, uh, oh, uh, the old rugged cross, realizing that my grandfather would have loved that old hymn, and it talks about cherishing the cross. We're going to read a passage this morning, though, where Peter hears about the cross for the first time, and his reaction is to reject the cross and to push Jesus away from the cross. Our theme has to do with the box that Peter is trying to create for Jesus, and I'm calling this Never Dying Jesus. The idea that he could just uh, keep things going the way they were, keep the band traveling around and Jesus moving from town to town, but never having to go to the cross. What happens if we try to put Jesus in that box? We're going to read Matthew 16, 21 to 28, and uh, we haven't done this for a while, but how about if you uh, stand and read with me? We'll, we'll get involved that way. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter, get behind me, Satan for you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward everyone according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Father God, give us understanding into these words of Jesus and what it means for us to be disciples and those who embrace the way of the cross. I pray that you will not only allow us to understand, but that what we understand will impact the way that we go forward and think about ourselves and our identity with you and the mission that you've given us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul Andrew, a Catholic prison chaplain, wrote about two robberies that took place at the Church of the Holy Cross in Midtown Manhattan in August of 2003. During the first of these break-ins, the thieves stole a money box that was placed near a rack of votive candles where parishioners would come and light a candle and pray. Then about three weeks later, the thieves broke into the church again. This time they took a four-foot-tall, 200-pound statue of Jesus that they had to remove from a crucifix that was hanging in front of the church. So picture this in in your minds. They stole the plaster statue of Jesus but left behind the cross. After the second burglary, when the church's caretaker, David St. James, was interviewed by the press, he included a statement that is worth remembering. Quote, They just decided 
we're going to leave the cross and take Jesus. We don't know why they just took him. We figured that if you want the crucifix, you take the whole crucifix, he said. The first part of that comment is what captured my attention. We're going to leave the cross and take Jesus. I think there are times when many people can identify with that sentiment. We're going to take Jesus and leave the cross. It rather neatly sums up the feeling that, uh, that Peter seems to display in this gospel passage that we just read after Jesus told him he was headed for the cross and Peter shouts out, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. This morning we're going to explore the topic of the never-dying Jesus. Why is the cross so integral to the ministry and message of Jesus? This is part five of our Rediscovering Jesus series, and it leads us to dig into Peter's thinking and, Peter's, uh, and Jesus' immediate response to Peter. So, welcome to North River Church. I'm glad to see each of you here with us in our Pembroke Worship Center today. Let me welcome those of you who are with us online. We're glad that you are taking part And I use that word, taking part. We don't want you just to view this, but to take part, to sing when we sing and pray when we pray and to to dive in and to ask questions and to get involved. The truth is we are discovering that we are one church that is meeting in multiple locations. And in that sense, we reflect the greater church at large that gathers in many places and yet worships the same Lord. We share this goal. We want to know Jesus and experience Jesus more and more every day. So we are searching the Gospels in order to gain insights into the faith that has been handed down to us from the apostles and throughout the generations. Whether you are a longtime Christian or if you are brand new to all of this, together we want to understand the Jesus who still changes lives of people today. And my hope is that he will change your life today. And if you have questions, please feel free to send them my way, dig deeper, join a study group, grow in faith. Don't let this just wash over you. Think deeply about Jesus. Here's the main idea that we're chasing this morning. Jesus calls people who would rather avoid the cross to risk everything by following him in all that we do. Peter is not all that unusual in the snapshot that we look at today, for there are moments when if you and I are rationally thinking people, we want to avoid the cross. We want Jesus, if we love him, to avoid the cross. And yet, That is so much a part of his mission that to try to urge him that way works against the direction that God had pointed him toward. So the question that we're asking this morning is, why did Jesus react the way that he did to Peter's rejection of the cross? Why did he react so forcefully, so immediately, even so harshly toward Peter? And we're going to look at at these thoughts for a minute. Uh, Before we go on, I want to welcome somebody. I noticed uh, Doug and Denise Gregson are here. Would you guys stand up for a minute? Doug and Denise have been missionaries that North River supported for many years with TWR in Guam. And they're going through a transition time right now, and we're just delighted that you decided to bless us and surprise us today. I'm really glad you guys are here. Why did Jesus react to Peter's rejection of the cross? First thought, Peter wanted a Messiah without a cross at least in that moment. Not permanently for Peter's mission, for Peter goes on and he's very faithful, but in that moment, he wanted a Messiah without a cross. In verse 15, just prior to this, we find that Jesus asked the question, but what about you, he asked the disciples. Who do you say I am? And Peter's the first one who responds. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
So earlier in this same chapter, in fact, in the paragraph that comes just before what we read, Peter had made his most important confession. Jesus and the disciples were at Caesarea Philippi. It was a prominent site where there was both political and religious value. The most prominent feature of that location was a rock edifice, a wall where statues of several idols had been resting. They rested on ledges carved into the rock, and this had been going on for centuries. And then Herod had built a temple for Caesar up on the high spot above that rock edifice, and Caesar was worshipped there as Lord. And so Jesus chose this specific spot to ask this question of the disciples. Who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one who gets it. He answers that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. The Hebrew word Messiah means chosen one. In, in Greek, it's the word Christos, which has become Christ in English. And Peter was voicing for the very first time his recognition that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah who was chosen by God to usher in this new era of redemption and salvation. Jesus immediately commends Peter for getting this right. He told Peter that he was blessed because his conviction had come from God himself. And Jesus chose this moment to teach about the birth of the church. The church grows one confession of faith at a time, even to this day. But notice what Jesus did next. Now that Peter has identified Jesus as the Messiah, and that is out in the open among Peter and the disciples, <coughs> Jesus began to point toward the inevitability of moving toward the cross. The details were spelled out by Jesus this way. He would go to Jerusalem, there would be suffering, he would be handed over to the religious leaders, he must be killed and raised up on the third day. We know this is all essential to the gospel. This is, this is part of the, the guts of it. You take that out and the gospel is gone. But this was brand new for Peter and the disciples. Jesus had hinted about it before, but now he is telling them very openly, this is where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem. You're going to have to confront the cross. I am going to have to go to the cross. This is the plan. He'd said it before, but Matthew makes this point. From that time on, Jesus began to teach about the cross. In other words, this wasn't just a one-moment thing. Continually, he kept coming back to that theme. He wanted the disciples to know this was God's plan. This is the way of salvation, that the cross is crucial. The cross is central for Jesus. And he continually taught on this theme. Peter's reaction is immediate. He says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. How do we process that? Well, for one thing, we know very clearly that if you use that current phrase, Peter was on the wrong side of history. I hate that phrase. It's been so overused today. But the cross happened. There's no doubt about this historically. More importantly, Peter was on the wrong side of Jesus at that moment. Jesus used some of the strongest language we ever see from him in rebuking Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, we'll have to unpack that in a moment. What was Jesus doing? Why did he respond that way? But I want to focus on Peter for this, this moment. What Peter wanted is understandable. He wanted Jesus to be able to avoid the cross. He wanted Jesus without the cross. He was emboldened by the way that his declaration 
about Jesus' identity had been instantly praised, and now he's making his campaign plan for Jesus to hold on to that moment. Perhaps he wanted to make Jesus king. Perhaps he he wanted the band to travel on further and, and to keep things going the way they were. But he hadn't fully understood what God had in mind. Yet Jesus knew his own mission, and he knew that his mission could not be completed apart from the cross. A few years ago, a North River man came to me in tears one Sunday by reconnecting with his faith through the ministry of friends here at North River. He had become very much a part of our church, and he had come to love Jesus more than anyone in the world. And he came to me this one Sunday with tears in his eyes, and he says, I've come to a dilemma, and I can't get away from this dilemma. I love Jesus. I think Jesus is my best friend. Jesus is the the most wonderful person I've ever met in my life. But I don't think that I can love God. And I said, why? I, I don't understand. He said, because God sent the person I love most in all the world to the cross. And he was stuck there. He's stuck with this uh, tremendous anguish of the soul in a sense of, of, of compartmentalizing God the Father and, and Jesus as if to say this wasn't one plan that they were agreed upon. And it took a long time for us to wrestle with that issue. What would, you dis- what would you say to a person who was stuck at a place like that? Peter wanted a Messiah without the cross. Here's the second reason Jesus responded as quickly as he did. Jesus said we cannot be his disciples without the cross. So put these two, th- two things together. Peter wanted a Messiah without the cross, but Jesus was teaching you cannot be disciples without the cross. Those two thoughts are radically opposing each other. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You know, there have been church movements in the past that have tried to get rid of the cross. H. Richard Niebuhr, a theologian in the middle of the 1900s, summed up that teaching this way. It was summing up a, a whole generation of theologians and teachers. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without the cross. Why the cross? Why is the cross essential to the ministry of Jesus? Well, there are a number of ways to answer that. God had made a promise back in the Garden of Eden. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so the evil one knew about the promise, but Adam and Eve knew that promise too. And they'd handed that off from generation to generation. Why? Because Abraham climbed the mountain and was willing to offer his son on Mount Moriah. But before Abraham could harm his son, the Lord stopped him and provided a ram instead. And on that day, the Lord reiterated his promise to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He promised that all nations would be blessed through Abraham, all because Abraham had not withheld his own son. When Jesus hung on Golgotha's hill, he could see Mount Moriah physically from that location and think back on the promise. Why was the cross so important? Because God had illustrated our need for a kinsman redeemer back in the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. 
Ruth is a story of a woman whose family estate was lost in debt. The only way out was for a kinsman redeemer, a relative who was close enough to step in as a guardian, someone who had the ability to pay off the debt and the willingness to suffer loss in order to do this. That concept of the kinsman redeemer works its way through Scripture all the way to the time when Jesus acts as our redeemer. Why? Because God had given Isaiah a prophetic vision of the Messiah, that he would be the one who bore our suffering and who bears our sins, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, whose punishment brought us peace, upon whom God had laid our sins, who was assigned to a grave with the wicked and led like a lamb to the slaughter, who had made his life an offering for sin, who poured out his life unto death, and yet who will see the light of life. All these things are written about Jesus in Isaiah 53. Why? Because the old prophet Simeon had been promised that he would not die until he'd seen the Savior coming. Jesus himself had a compassion for for the crowds of people who were listening to him because he saw them looking like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was headed to the cross because there was no other way than for a redeemer who was able to forgive sins to publicly give his own life as a ransom for our sins and for our lives. Ultimately, the cross was necessary because God so greatly and so passionately loved the world and the people of this world that he sent his one-of-a-kind son that whosoever believes on him might not perish dying with the weight of our own sins. See, all through Scripture, the point is made very, very clear that there was no other way for people to be forgiven by a holy and just God for the wrongs that we've done, for the penalty that sin naturally incurs, someone had to pay the price. Why must we pick up our cross? That's the other half of what Jesus says. Well, Jesus didn't come to wow the crowds. He came to make disciples. That's the word that Jesus used, disciples. Later on in Antioch, they became known as Christians. Uh, Luke describes it in some places. They were simply called the way, that uh, they were the people of the way. But Jesus used the word disciple. Disciples, by definition, follow the way of the master, study his way, and put it into practice. Disciples naturally carry on the work of the master, who is the good shepherd. Jesus didn't come to gather likes on Facebook or just to collect fans. There's a pastor named Kyle Eidelman that wrote a great little book a few years ago called Not a Fan. And he's saying, I'm not a fan of Jesus. And it really gets your attention at first. And finally, he explains, he's not just a fan. We're called to be disciples. It's something far more than clicking a like button or even putting a little heart there. Why? We were designed for a mission. And so we find our lives by living in mission with Jesus. So whoever lives their life on their own terms, Jesus is saying, ultimately loses it because it becomes squandered with all the cares of this world. Yet whoever loses their life in the cause of following Jesus finds it because we discover the mission that we were created for by the God who designed us. The mission of Jesus continues through his disciples until all the sheep are in the fold. That's the goal. Disciples care about gathering lost sheep and bringing them to the shepherd. We discover in that process that Jesus is not looking for the comfortable who sit on the couch. He declared that he was looking for workers who bring in the harvest. 
The work of Jesus leads us to teach, train, disciple, feed, clothe, encourage, and love other people wherever they are. And all of this is the work of picking up our cross and carrying it daily. Sometimes you'll be praised for this work. Sometimes you may be mocked for it or even rejected for it. It is the daily calling to put others first in order to carry out the mission of Jesus today. Now, this doesn't mean that you necessarily have to give up your career or your passions or your interests in life. Want to be an architect? Great. Be an architect on mission for Jesus. Want to be a dancer or an artist? Wonderful. Do it with passion. Do it with brilliance. Do it all for the glory of God. Dream of being a police officer or a firefighter or a teacher or a nurse or an executive? Fantastic. Offer that to Jesus and become his secret agent in the office wherever you go. Retired and resting from your labors? Gotcha. Wonderful. Find purpose in Jesus every day. He's not done with you yet. You still have influence, and you will till the day you draw your last breath. See, Jesus calls people who would naturally, if we were just left by ourselves, rather avoid the cross to risk everything by following him in all that we do. Here's the third answer to that question. Jesus never tolerates the notion of a Messiah without a cross. So in verse 23, we find Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Why did Jesus refer to Satan when responding to Peter? We have to go back a little bit in the Gospels. Do you remember the temptation scene from Matthew chapter 4? There, in the third part of the temptation, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and offers them to Jesus. He takes him to a high place where they can look out at all the lands in front of them. He says right then and right there, he will give them to Jesus if Jesus will just bow down and worship him in that moment. This final test offers Jesus a shortcut that avoids the cross. It's the shortcut, shortcut to glory and power and recognition. But you know what would, be le- would have been left out if Jesus had taken that option? Saving people from their sins. He would have had the glory of the moment, but, but not the worldwide significance that comes over time and not the love of his followers. Jesus saw Peter's comment as another temptation from the evil one. The tempter never completely stops. He just looks for a better time. And so here he used the love of one of Jesus' most ardent followers, Peter. Why does Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? Because he knew the tricks of the evil one. Back in the Garden of Eden, the evil one had sowed doubt and told half-truths, and with that, won over Adam and Eve. And now he prompts Peter to say, never, Lord, not the cross. We won't let this happen. But Jesus never tolerated the notion of a Messiah without the cross, even for a minute. Not when the evil one tempted him in the desert, not when Peter offers to fight for him in the Garden of Gethsemane, not in an age when people try to strip Christian faith of the message of sin and the cross. Not one comment, with one comment, Peter went from a rock that Jesus will build on to a stumbling stone. Do you notice the the poetic significance of calling him a stumbling stone? One paragraph after telling him, on this rock I will build my church. But the cross is the glory of God for those who find rest in Jesus. 
Consider the conviction of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18 where he wrote, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Do you realize that once you understand the love that motivated Jesus to move toward the cross, the, the mission that pushed Jesus toward the cross, we see the cross differently from everybody else who has not embraced Jesus. The world looks at the cross as foolishness. Why would you believe in something like that? Why would Jesus do something like that? But to those of us who are recipients of grace, the cross becomes something that is wonderful, transformed from the ugliness that it was intended for to the glory of God for us. Here's what we discover. Souls find rest when we no longer play it safe. Sometimes people think of Christianity as a very safe and, and mild religion for the, for the meek and the easygoing. But I have news for you. These words for Jesus call that risk-taking part of us to, to the fore. Look at what he says here, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward everyone according to what they have done. Jesus calls His disciples to three bold commitments. The first one has to do with self-denial. No longer living life simply on your own terms, but putting God's purpose first in whatever we do. Doesn't mean that we never have fun. Doesn't mean that uh, we never do things that we're interested in, but we're always thinking through, what is His purpose for me every day? The second is taking up your cross. It means risking everything out of loyalty to Jesus versus self-preservation. That we think of our loyalty to Him first. And following Jesus is the third part of these bold commitments. Long-term commitment is what he's looking for, to live out Jesus' commands, not simply for us to, to like him for a day. These risks and, and rewards reveal what is truly at stake, saving one's life versus losing your life, gaining the world versus for, forfeiting your soul, selling your soul versus the rewards when Jesus comes in his glory. And with all of these uh, contrasts that are included. He's trying to cause us to count the cost and to recognize he wants us to find ourselves through our identity with him rather than to find ourselves in self-oriented ways throughout this world, believing that the God who created us has a mission for each of us that ultimately leads to the rewards at the end that God longs to give us that last for eternity rather than a short duration. Side by side, these three statements bring clarity about what Jesus offers. A fullness of life that is wrapped up in God's great redemptive story. He's saying, come be part of this. And the thrill and risk of living for rewards from the Father rather than for our own culture's comfort. Jesus calls people who would rather avoid the cross to risk everything by following him in all that we do. So here's more of the good news. The gospel is so good that there is nothing about your life that can share 
can scare away or shock Jesus. The gospel is advancing as people desperate for grace take hold of Jesus' offer. The gospel is so good that Jesus is willing to be misunderstood by standing with us. These are all the lessons we've been learning in this series. The gospel is so good that it's worth giving your life for it, even after counting the cost. The gospel is so good that Jesus gets angry when we create obstacles in the path for those who are farthest from God. And the gospel is so good that we find new life and purpose by carrying the cross in mission for Jesus. Do you sense Jesus calling you today? Maybe there's a sense of, of him challenging you to renew your faith and your commitment to him. Or maybe there's a, a challenge for you to say, wow, I didn't realize that there's a, there's a risk here in the gospel in identifying as a Christian. And he's calling me forward with all my competitive juices to take on the risk rather than to stay comfortable. But I wonder if you just close your eyes for a minute and pray along with me wherever God leads you. Here are my thoughts for this moment. Jesus, thank you for embracing the cross for our sake. I will pick up my cross and follow for your sake. As we turn from our sin, our rebellion, and from running away, we ask you to forgive us. Lord, we're placing our trust in you as the Redeemer, the Redeemer that a loving God has sent for us. Help us to trust and love you more and to follow wherever you lead. I will pick up my cross and follow you daily. God, I pray that you would hear our prayers. I pray that you would give us this passionate sense that you created us and designed us for a mission and that mission is worth everything that we have and everything that we are to be identified with you as the victor over sin and death and corruption and all that is wrong so that one day when you are glorified that we will be rewarded and honored with you and that we will stand and bask in your glory. Lead us to that day. Give us the faith to continue on. Give heart and words and conviction to the person who's been wrestling with whether or not to commit to your way as that person right now might be saying, Lord, I will risk it all for you, for you risked everything for me. We pray these thoughts in Jesus' name. Amen.